chapter 15, verse 17. In the 39th year of King Azariah. Oh, one last thing too. Remember, these are the people of God. Who would have ever thought way back in Abraham that they would end up like this? And the warning to us too is not just our culture, but the warning is that the people of God can become like this too. The church can become like this. Remember the church, both Catholic and Protestant, stood next to Hitler. And they supported him, knowing what he was doing. It was a very few minority that actually opposed him and stood up to him. And they were executed with the approval of the Catholic Church and the Protestant pastors. The church can act like this if we allow ourselves to fall away from God. Chapter 15, verse 17. In the 39th year of King Azariah's reign over Judah, Menahem, son of Gadi, became king over Israel. He reigned for 12 years in Samaria. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Bat, who encouraged Israel to sin. During his reign, Pul, king of Assyria, invaded the land. And Menahem paid him a thousand talents of silver to gain his support and solidify his control over the kingdom. Now, Pul. Pul is the Assyrian king. Pul is also known as Tiglath Pilzar III. Pul is his real name. Tiglath Pilzar III is his throne name. So Pul became king over Assyria. When he took the throne, he named himself Tiglath Pilzar III. Now, when we get to chapter 17 and Israel's taken to exile, I'll go through the Assyrians. Okay, this guy was evil. And he revolutionized warfare. And he was going to be the first person in all of human history that's going to build an empire. There's never, ever been an empire until this guy comes along. And so this guy is incredibly evil, incredibly sadistic. He's going to massacre the world, basically. He's going to build an empire that's going to be incredibly oppressive. And the king of Israel is making alliances with him. Menahem got the silver by taxing all the wealthy men in Israel. He took 50 shekels of silver from each one of them and paid it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria left, and he did not stay there in the land. The rest of the events of Menahem's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Menahem passed away, and son Pekiah replaced him as king. Let's back up a little bit to Jehu a little bit. Most scholars believe these assassinations have to do with a pro- or anti-Assyrian position. Syria and Assyria are not the same thing. Assyria is coming out of Mesopotamia. Assyria's capital is Nineveh. Assyria, for a long period of time, has just been a little mini-kingdom. It's a bunch of city-states coming together and forming a kingdom. And they've risen to power, they've collapsed. They've risen to power, they've collapsed. They've risen to power. Now we're entering into a, a landmark historical event in Assyria's life. This is what modern-day scholars call Neo-Assyria. It's when Assyria is going to become the most dominant force in all the world and the most dominant force that anybody has ever seen in the world up to this point. And by world, I mean the known world, China, Middle East, going into Europe. 
But even if you want to throw North and South America into this, it's still an empire like the world has never seen. I'm going to, I'll talk about them in way more detail when we get to chapter 17. Jehu was pro-Assyria. Jehu comes on the scene when he's king. This is the very beginning of Assyria's rise to power. And they're starting to become more and more prominent. And to show you something, this is both a historical thing, but it's also really cool to see this. For a long time, a lot of people have accused the Bible of like, none of these kings ever appear anywhere else. The Bible is just making up a bunch of names. Now, a lot of this has been proven wrong over the last couple of decades, but one of a very significant thing is this stele. A stele is an image carved into stone. And what's really cool about this is on the left side, we have the Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king is here, and you see the Assyrian logo here, the eagle with the wings, the solar disk. This is the Egyptian eye of Horus or Ra with the wings of Isis that gets applied to a lot of other different religions. It's, I am a god. I'm not just the king. I'm backed by the gods, and I am almost like a god. So here are his attendants, and he's coming forth with all of his pomp. This is a typical attire of an Assyrian king and what they look like. Assyrians and Babylonians very stand out a lot by the way of the beards. They have their really curly, tight beards. These are other attendants, the Assyrian king on the right. And in the middle is an Israelite king bowing down in homage, paying tribute to the Assyrian king. Now, what's interesting is this is exactly how the Assyrian king looks with his, his crown, his gold crown, um, his um, fancy, beautiful, vibrant clothes, the, the, the hair. But the Jewish king, a lot of the Jewish kings, they didn't have all that pomp and circumstances like we're used to. They wore these little caps on their head that were kind of like elf caps, that we, we would think of as an elf cap, or um, that you would wear on the snow. <laughs> and then they had these very simple dress, just a simple robe. And that's the king. And what's interesting here is in cuneiform, which is an Ugaritic language, is one of the oldest languages ever, and it's the language of the Akkadians, the Assyrians, that kind of stuff. It says, Jehu, king of Israel, paying tribute. And it is dated to the exact date that the Bible says that Jehu is reigning. And so this is a, one of many, many, many things that totally validates that these men are real. They really did exist, and other cultures have written about them. And like I've mentioned before, many things could be proven to be accurate in the Bible if we just had the time to find them. Much of this stuff is still buried. We can't dig up the whole Middle East. People are living there, and we don't have the money to dig up the whole Middle East where people are not living. And on top of that, what we have discovered, we have warehouses full of these things and documents that we just don't have enough translators to get to them yet. And every year, we're discovering more and more things as we go through these things that is like, oh, that proves the Bible, that proves the Bible, that proves the Bible. Not one thing has been found that disproves the Bible. Not one thing. And so not only does this validate the legitimacy of the Bible, but it also shows the beginning of the pro-Assyrian kingship of Israel. And this is one of the things that the prophets are going to attack Israel for big time. The prophet's going to constantly hit this pro-Assyrian thing over and over and over again. So we have four, dynast- four people in the dynasty of Jehu that are supporting the Assyrians. 
The last one is Zechariah. Zechariah gets assassinated by Shalom. Most scholars believe because Shalom was anti-Assyria. And so he assassinates the dynasty of Jehu because he has an anti-Assyrian policy. And we know from his sins, it's not because he's pro-God, he's just anti-Assyria on a political level. Then later, we have Menahem assassinating him because we're told later that he's actually pro-Assyria. And they're going back in the alliance. Now he's getting assassinated by Pekiah because he's anti-Assyria. So now these assassinations are not just about power. It's also about political differences of how to keep our country safe. Well, do we ally ourselves or do we stay true to our identity? Which I think we're right there now in America. Of how do we keep our borders safe? Do we build walls and shut ourselves down or do we make alliances? And we're completely divided on that as a nation. And it's not simple. And so this is what we're entering into is a assassinations based on political stances of how to keep Israel, Israel. In chapter 15, verse 23, In the 15th year of King Azariah's reign over Judah, Menahem's son, Pekiah, became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria for two years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Bat, who encouraged Israel to sin. His officer, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, conspired against him. He and 50 Gileadites assassinated Pekiah as well as Argob and Ariah and Samaria and the fortresses of the royal palace. Pekah then took his place as king. The rest of the events of Pekiah's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the King of Israel. Verse 27, in the 52nd year of King Azariah's reign over Judah, Pekah, son of Ramalia, became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria for 22 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, with encouraged Israel to sin. Now, you've got to love this name, Pekah. Like, it just makes me think of a bird call. Like, Pekah, Pekah. <laughs> okay. Have you ever seen um, um, Three Amigos? And then he's up on the wall. He's looking down. He's trying to get the other two guys' attention, but he doesn't want to make it obvious that he's making bird calls. He's like, paga, paga. It's like, that's totally. <laughs> You're probably going to think I'm so weird now because I always have these weird images when I read this stuff. And then I tell you what these weird images are. But these are the things that pop into my head when I'm reading. I can't help. There's word associations happening from all my years of watching movies and all that kind of stuff. But that's what I think of. The three amigo scenes pops in my head. Where he's on the wall. He's like, paga, paga. <laughs> doing a bird call. So that's why he's going to die. You're not allowed to have a name like that. Verse 29. During Pekah's reign over Israel, King Tiglath Pilzar, now we're getting his throne name, of Assyria came and captured Aijon, Abel Beth Makkah, and Johan Kedesh Hazor, Gilead, Gilead, including the territory of Natalia, and he deported the people to Assyria. That's a lot of seas. These are major seas in the north. Many, 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 many major cities in the north. So basically what it's saying is he's conquering all of this region, all of these cities. And he's coming down to the capital, Samaria, getting closer and closer. Did their alliance with Assyria work out? No. Verse 30. 
Hoshea, son of Allah, conspired against Pekah, son of Ramalia, and he assassinated him and took his place as king in the 20th year of the reign of Jotham, son of Uzziah. This is a lot of assassinations. This is more than the first time, the first run through. The rest of the events of Pekah's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. So Tiglath Pilzar is now in the nation deporting people. We'll talk about that in chapter 17. Chapter 15, verse 32. In the second year of the reign of Israel's king, Pekah, son of Ramalia, Uzziah, son of Jotham, became king over Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, over six, reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what Yahweh approved, just as his father Uzziah had done. But the high places were not eliminated. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense on the high places. He built the upper gate to Yahweh's temple. The rest of the events of Jotham's reign, including his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. And in those days, Yahweh prompted King Rezan of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramalia, to attack Judah. Jotham passed away and was buried with his ancestors in the city of his ancestor David. His son Ahaz replaced him as king. Now you notice that we have had several really godly kings in a row in Judah. Okay, we've had Amaziah, we've had um, um, Jotham, and, um, yeah, I'm going blank now. <laughs> we've had four godly kings in a row, basically, here. This is the longest streak that we've seen so far. But Ahaz is going to break that streak. One thing that is mentioned here is Rezin of Aram, or also called Syria, is going to join an alliance with Pekah, the king of Israel. Now, they're mostly joining an alliance to ward off Assyria because Assyria has become a juggernaut. This is where the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. Aram has been attacking Israel over and over and over and over again. But now there's this large juggernaut called Assyria coming down, and they are steamrolling everybody. And all of a sudden, Aram is like, oh my gosh, we're going to get rolled over just like Israel. And then all of a sudden, they're uniting now to stop their common enemy. So, But Judah wants nothing to do with that. Judah doesn't want to ally with them. So in a desperate attempt to become more powerful and gain more money and more military, they begin to attack Judah so they can absorb Judah's military and economy and ward off Assyria. The problem is, politically speaking, economically and militarily speaking, there's no way that's going to work. Assyria is so overwhelming because all these people, Moab, Edom, Amalek, Judah, they will all begin to start trusting each other and all just going to get clobbered. Politically, militarily, there's no way to stop this. And the other reason is God has specifically said, I am sending the Assyrians. So they're not going to be able to stop Assyria because God is backing Assyria. Chapter 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of the reign of Pekah, Son of Ramalia, Jotham's son Ahaziah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what pleased Yahweh, his God, in contrast to his ancestor David. He followed in the footsteps of the kings of Israel. He passed his son through the fire 
a horrible sin practiced by the nations whom Yahweh drove out from before the Israelites. He offered sacrifice and burnt incense in the high place on the hills and under every green tree. So now we've got the king of Israel who's ripping open pregnant women. Now we've got the king of Judah who's sacrificing his own children in the fire to the gods. And so now what we've been told is the king of Israel and now the king of Judah are just bad. But the king of Judah is even worse because he's doing the worst thing that you could possibly think of. He's taking the, the, the life of a human, a child who is your descendant, the inheritance of Yahweh, and he's killing it for the sake of a God's blessing, for his own power, his own power. These pagan gods said, if you really love me and you want me to bless you, then you will take the most important thing to me and you and sacrifice it to me, your child, your son. At that time, King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah, son of Ramali of Israel, attacked Jerusalem. They besieged Ahaz, but were unable to conquer him. At that time, King Rezin of Syria recovered a lot of Syria. and he drove the Judaites from there. Syrians arrived in the lot and lived there to this very day. Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pelazar of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your dependent. So he is now circumventing Israel and Aram and becoming pro-Assyria and making an alliance. Then Ahaz took the silver and the gold that were in the Yahweh's temple and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it to a tribute to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria responded favorably to his request and he attacked Damascus and captured it and he deported the people to Kir and executed Rezin. So he paid Assyria to assassinate the king of Rome. Chapter 16, verse 10. When King Ahaz went to meet with King Tiglath-Pilzar of Assyria in Damascus, he saw the altar there. King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a drawing of the altar and a blueprint for its design. Uriah the priest built an altar in conformity to the plans of King Hazah had sent from Damascus. Uriah the priest finished it before King Hazah and arrived back from Damascus. So he goes up, so basically... Damascus is the capital of Aram. And the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pilzar, has conquered it and is now controlling it. So this now all belongs to Assyria now. So he goes up there to meet with Tiglath-Pilzar because they now have an alliance. And when he's there, he sees Armenian or Syrian, the king of Aram. He sees an altar in their temple. A temple, an altar probably most likely to Rimnon, their god. And he is so impressed by this altar that he blueprints it basically, sends it down to the priest and says, duplicate that in the temple of God. So he is duplicating a pagan altar that probably has images of um, the gods and, and, and pagan imagery and all that kind of stuff. And it is given to the priest and the priest is saying, yep, going to do it. And it shows the corruption of everything. It's going to get duplicated in the temple of God. Uriah finished it before King Isaiah revived back from Damascus. When the king arrived back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and he offered a sacrifice on it. He offered his burnt sacrifices and grain offerings. And he poured out his libation, which is most likely a wine offering, and sprinkled the blood from his peace offering on the altar. He moved the bronze altar that stood in Yahweh's presence from the front of the temple between the altar and Yahweh's temple and put it on the north side of the new altar. So basically, he intentionally took the altar of God and moved it to the back. And this altar, the implication is bigger and overshadows the other altar. 
And so he's literally replacing Yahweh in Yahweh's own temple. And he's sacrificing the peace offerings that God commanded them to do to a different God now. King Ahaz ordered Uriah the priest on the large altar, offered the morning burnt sacrifices and eve offering. The burnt offerings are required for the atonement of sins. And the royal offerings and sacrifice grain offerings and burnt sacrifices for all the people of Israel. The grain offering and their libations sprinkle all the blood of the burnt sacrifices and other sacrifices on it. The bronze altar will be for my personal use. So it's basically completely replaced. So Uriah the priest did exactly as King Ahaz ordered. King Ahaz took off the frames of the movable stands and removed the basins from them. He took the sea, which was that big wash basin that was completely impractical, that Solomon made for the cleansing of sins, down from the bronze bowls and supported it and put it on the pavement. He also removed the Sabbath awning and had been built in the temple and the king's altar entranceway on account of the king of Assyria. So he's doing this to gain the approval of the king of Assyria. I'm trying to make it look more like an Assyrian temple. So when he comes down, he'll feel comfortable. We have never, ever, ever seen a king make any blueprint adjustments to the temple like Solomon. Not only has the temple not been mentioned since Solomon, except for the brief mention of Shishak the Pharaoh invading in 1 Kings chapter 14, and then later Joash in chapter 11 being protected by there and remodeled the temple, Those are the only times. Now it's been mentioned again, and now it's being overhauled. With a pagan altar from Aram, and to me look more like an Assyrian temple for comfort. And he is drastically reshaping the temple. And so the temple already looked like a Phoenician temple, and was already pagan to begin with when Solomon did it. But at least he was trying to convince himself he was doing it for Yahweh. Now the temple has become even more pagan like the Assyrians and this guy is blatantly bringing idols and other gods into it. And we're going to be told in the prophets and later when we get to um, Manasseh that they're literally going to bring idols into the actual temple and begin to worship other gods in the temple. Israel and Judah at this point have become just like the pagans. They're not just committing sins like the pagans. They're not just being disobedient, but they're literally beginning to look like them. They're doing evil to the point of killing people in unnatural and gross ways. They are sacrificing their own children. They are remodeling Israel to look like the pagan gods and pagan temples. If you were to move away and go to college and come back, this is not the Israel that you left. It is looking more and more like paganism behavior and in looks and most importantly and most drastically and most horribly in a world view and the way that they view the world. And this is how far the chosen people of God who've experienced God, seen God, talked to God, miracles of God, Shekinah glory of God there, blessed by God, law of God, tabernacle of God, sacrificial system of God, have now become just like the world. And they don't even know how the sacrificial system, the temple, and the law even point to Yahweh because they have remodeled it in the image of the pagan world around them. And that's what we need to be careful of 
is sometimes the remodeling of the way that we do church happens so gradually over time that we don't even realize that it's not even church anymore. And we really need to take everything, especially in the culture that we live in, and we're so ignorant of the Bible and what God really thinks what true worship is. We, if there's ever a time to not only get on our knees and cry out to God, but this is the time that we need to take the way that we do things, the way we do worship, messages, structure our churches, programs, and really start going back to the Bible and asking ourselves, have we slowly migrated and evolved into an American cultural way of doing things versus a true Sabbath way of doing things according to the Bible. Now, I'm not saying we go back to the law. We're not under the law. I'm saying a biblical, Christ-honoring way of doing things. And in my opinion, nothing should be off limits. And it would be cool to say, wow, that really is biblical. And that's been untouched. I'm not saying everything has to be overhauled. I'm just saying everything has to be evaluated. Everything has to be evaluated. So that we can truly say, in good conscience, yes, I really do think that's honoring to God. And that's what's beginning to happen to Israel. It's all being overhauled in the image of the world, not in the image of God. And this is where the prophets are going to really kick in and really start condemning Israel. Because there's nothing that's unique about Israel anymore. This is the warning. I do not believe at all that we're to this point yet. But I'm also not ignorant and blind enough to think that we're not heading that way and can't end up that way. I do believe in revival. I've mentioned this before. I would not be teaching if I did not believe in revival. But that doesn't mean revival is guaranteed if we don't really take a hard look at how we do things.